mean, uh, the Hudson Valley is kind of like a hotbed for UFO activity, and it always has been. I mean, I, with my own eyes, saw one of the most famous UFO sightings of all time, and I saw it. What was it called? What I responded to more than the ship that was hovering above our street going so slow and uh, no noise, dude, zero noise. And it was just, I responded more to the fear from the adults. Friends, Romans, countrymen, let me ears. Hello, everyone. You are tuned to the MC Lars podcast. It is September 21st, 2020. This is episode 103. That was just a little introduction. I've uh, been kicking off the podcast with little snippets from the podcast that I've been also using on my social media posts, which some of you may have seen, like little nuggets about the conversation we get into every week. And this week is my third and final episode with Weird Science, the drummer of Coed in Cambria, a fantastic rapper from upstate New York, who is the only artist I ever signed to my label. And uh, we talk a lot about truth and politics on this episode in a really interesting way, because I feel like this stuff is so controversial. You can't really talk about this stuff without alienating or annoying people. And uh, this weekend, my wife and I watched a movie called The Social Dilemma. It's like a docu-drama. So it has like, it's a documentary with some dramatic recreations. My sister recommended it to me. And it kind of reinforces the stuff I was talking about um, after I did my social media break. There's a great book by Cal Newport called Digital Minimalism. Basically, the point is that these companies like Facebook and Instagram, which is owned by Facebook and Twitter, these companies make so much money off of polarizing us and making us distrust each other and alienating us and giving us news that's curated to the algorithms about what we believe in, that they really, truth becomes this mercurial, difficult thing to figure out. But truth is also unrefutable. The earth is not flat, you know, like vaccines are a good thing. Like these are facts that you can't refute. And I'm not trying to go on an anti-corporate conspiracy theory judgment rant. My point is that this interview with Weird Science was very refreshing because we were able to talk honestly about things that I feel like people can't talk about now. And I've known Josh for so long, almost 10 years. I really respect the way his mind works. And it's interesting. He talks about some of the people he knows in upstate New York who are anti-vaxxers, seeing Confederate flags and freaking hudson valley and how insane that is so anyway it was interesting editing this after we watched the social dilemma docudrama which i really recommend it's on netflix and uh yeah that's what's up i also recommend the cal newport digital minimalism book because we can fight against these monoliths that are trying to sequester our information by diving into long form content like this and i know some of my opinions you know i have opinions about things i try not to cram them down people's throats but I like to engage people on this podcast who have different opinions, different perspectives, and I love to engage with them. So anyway, this is my third episode with Weird Science. Thank you, Josh. It's been great talking to you on the podcast. Check out the MC Lars Bandcamp because there is a lot of new flavor on there you may have missed. I dropped a uh, EP, which was a remastered album that I did in high school with my first, actually my second band, Amphoteric. You can find that on mclars.bandcamp.com. Uh, I put out a new compilation of rarities and unreleased songs. It's called 23 Concepts, but a hit apparently both obviously and clearly still ain't one, which is a follow-up to 22 Concepts, but a hit definitely still ain't one. And 
the first compilation, 21 Concepts But a Hit Ain't One, which is a reference to the song from The Graduate. There are actually three versions of the first 21 Concepts. Some of those songs got lost because that album was commercially available, but it had some unclear samples, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you have those three albums, you have kind of the collection of unreleased songs. Speaking of unreleased songs... Uh, on Patreon, I am about to drop my final Marvel song about Spider-Man Far From Home. And if you've seen that movie, there's a scene where I'm going to spoil a little bit. Skip ahead if you don't want to spoil Spider-Man Far From Home. There's a uh, illusionary fire monster that destroys Prague. And I talk about how being away from California during the forest fires is, you know, sad knowing that like parts of the state that I love so much um, are burning up and won't be the same and it won't be the same for the future generations and it's just it's crazy it's sad it's a very stressful time so i kind of incorporated that how i'm feeling as the character of peter parker in that song and then next week i start the lars war series where i'm doing rap songs about every single movie tv show video game chronologically in the star wars universe that's what's up also uh, my wife and I just did a parody of WAP by Cardi B and Megan The Stallion. Ours is called Wet Ass Poopies. It's on Spotify. And uh, check it out. It's about our son. This week's podcast is brought to you by the following Patreon Larsons. I want to shout out Travis, Nathan, and Isaac, the new ones who just signed up. And shout out to the old ones, Lewis, Anthony, and Mike. Thank you so very much. If you sign up, you get all the Marvel songs, the Star Wars songs, all the freaking the hundred songs you may not have heard all there on the wonderful, amazing platform that is known as Patreon. This week's letter to Atlas comes from Ben, who runs Blacktop Records up in Canada. They're the Canadian label that put out the Zombie Dinosaur LP on cassette. Ben calls in and leaves a nice message for our son, Atlas. Is he sleeping? Is he pooping? Just checking in. How's a little boy doing? These are some messages that you left. Wishing our little baby boy the best. Now it's time for Letters to Atlas. Please leave a message after the tone. Guys, congratulations. It's uh, Ben here uh, from Blacktop Records in Canada. Uh, I just had to call in uh, just to say uh, the most beautiful family. I'm, I'm so excited for you, dude. Uh, Atlas is beautiful. Um, I just want to call and leave a message and just uh, let you know that and also pass a message on to the little dude. I, I know you were saving these uh, so when he's a little bit older, he, he can stir him and stuff like that. Um, dude, uh, I bought your dad's uh, guitar off of him on eBay a few years back. He wrote a, a really cool record on it. Um, I put out a record uh, for him here in Canada on cassette, and um, I, I love your dad. And uh He's um, a cool dude, and uh, that guitar, I think, meant a lot to him. It means a lot to me right now, and I've been writing a lot of stuff on it and recording a lot of stuff on it, and um, yeah, uh, that guitar is going to be around, so when you're old enough to play it and stuff like that, if if, uh, if you ever want to make it back that way and have a piece of something that your dad had and, and wrote a lot of stuff on, uh, look me up online or look at my son, uh, just in case I'm not around, hopefully I am, but if I'm not... Max Andrus, Leo Andrus, one of those two dudes, man. Uh, they'll make sure your dad's guitar gets back to you somehow, man. It makes sense. So uh, uh, I love all you guys. Uh, again, congratulations. And, uh, it's exciting, man. Uh, have a family. Uh, can't wait to cross paths again soon. Be safe. Bye. Thank you, Ben. You're a great friend, and that's a super sweet message. Um, what other news do I have? We had the Shaq News Stimulus Games this weekend. 
I am horrible at Rocket League for anyone who's tuned in. And so to distract people from that fact, I got into this long conversation over the Discord video server, talking to Front A Lot, playing a game where I tried to quiz him on what was an ICP album versus what was something I made up. And the joke was that everything I mentioned was an ICP album. So I was distracted. Shout out to Shaq News for having us to do these tournaments and they're on Twitch and it's very fun. And we're going to do another one. We're going to do a fourth, but uh, yeah, they're awesome. Um, there's going to be another four-eyed horseman show, formerly known as the Mount Nerdcore show. Go to tinyurl.com slash four-eyed horsemen. You can get a uh, exclusive t-shirt, um, there's different levels you can support the show at. If you support at a higher level, you can request any song, and I'll do any song in my catalog if you want to check that out. That is September 26th. That's Saturday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern. It's about three hours. Sky Blue is opening, and he's tight. Um, we're going to end this podcast with the 23 remix that Weird Science is on that we recorded in England that was on Indie Rocket Science. And uh, it's just been a lot of fun editing these podcasts with weird science reminiscing because Josh is an important person to me and it's really cool to have a friend you can just break down the nature of truth with and not feel judged right and I hope y'all feel empowered to talk about that and feel empowered to disconnect yourself from the social media matrix that's designed to monetize our biases and our weaker human nature I'll quit ranting this is my final interview with Weird Science on the MC Lars podcast. Holler. Last episode, you spoke a little bit about how you were toying with the idea of like when you were making some of your more recent records as to whether it was going to be the end of weird science, but also you were talking about how you were thinking you had more, more stuff in you. So I wanted to touch on that. Like what does the future hold for weird science? Well, that's a good question, Lars. I don't know. And I, one, I don't really know how to answer because it's like Monday. I'll tell you like, you know, man, it's just not there. I don't, and I don't want to have to force it. Like I've always, you know, there's always a level of workmanship that comes with writing. which I think any writer can attest to there's, you know, some you gotta sit and get the stuff out. Like, but if you feel like deeply uninspired one day, I think out of frustration, I'll say, you know what, man, I think I'm done with this. But then Tuesday, a song comes to me. You know, it's like, oh well, I'm not done with this. I don't think I could ever really be done with Weird Science. But in terms of like putting out albums, um, we'll see, man. I kind of feel like the next Weird Science record. Who knows, man? Um, at a certain point, it's almost just like fucking with myself. Like it could be a country album for all I know. I don't know. Uh, cause I did sit down to write the other day and I wrote this song on the guitar and it's kind of countryish. It's like, um, I don't know, but it's my favorite thing that I've written. So I send it to Ernie and Chris, uh, and upgrade cause me and upgrade are doing a record. It's called, uh, feared among their witching ranks. And, uh, I can't say too much about it because there's kind of like a, you know, like subtle rollout that we have planned. But um, it's a really neat concept. It's a total concept album. Um, it's like a one-time thing. If we were ever do another one, it would be a different concept. But it's being upgraded. It's a lot of it's written, and we're gonna go record it this week. So that's um, tight. I'm excited. Yeah, it's it's weird science and upgrade. It's it's uh, definitely dark. It's like a, a take on modern times but like through the lens of 
uh, like a classic eighties movie. It, you'll find it. it's going to be, it's cool. Like the idea is silly, but the project isn't silly. Like it's, it's not silly. It's like unique and kind of cool. And hopefully it could be like one of those kind of like Deltron or like one of those like interesting conceptual hip hop albums and upgrade. I'm just such a fan of upgrades, man. He's like, he's one of my favorite writers. He's one of my favorite performers. I've never seen like someone be so at ease on stage. He just, has this thing that like i wish i had you know and it's like it but it comes from like within um you're really good on stage too remember on the last podcast i was saying how much i learned on warp tour and how fred and his wife told me like towards the end of warp tour that it was like watching a different guy me like from the beginning to the end and all of that i could point to you and just learning how to be comfortable in your skin up there like playing drums i'm comfortable in my skin that's what i know but being in the front of the stage is different to me like it's and i definitely was like nervous at times we op- weird science opened up for p-funk once and you know i did my job i don't think i looked scared up there or anything but it wasn't like that level of lars or upgrade comfort so the drummer from p-funk good friend of mine terrific drummer that i've learned just light years of stuff from he saw me play another weird science show years later and he told me in a totally complimentary way he's like dude that's what i want to see from weird science and he meant like comfort wise on stage he brought up like that p-funk show and he's just like that was you know you had eight dudes on stage with you and like you're doing your thing but this show like i was i just was comfortable and i'd learned a great deal like i kept learning but like i could definitely point back to that warp tour experiences like plus doing it every day but Upgrade, have you ever seen him perform live, Upgrade? Yeah, because you guys, when we did that show at the Knitting Factory with, I think, uh, Mega Ran, maybe, he was there, and you guys did some songs. And yeah, I think he's a great performer, definitely. Yeah, he just has a comfort level. Like, yeah. it's, I wish that I could, God, talk about a great performer, Mega Ran. That guy is so good. He is amazing. Oh, yeah, dude. And you guys together is just like the best bill, too. Like, that's a show that whether I knew you guys or not, like, I would pay to go see that show. Thank you. God damn, I miss shows, man. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know, right? Oh, it breaks my heart. Like, I just picture, like, you guys coming through Albany and me going out to see that show. Like, that's the show. That's my – God, I've picked I, – you, you guys should do, like, uh, like your brand of hip-hop, like, festival-type show with, like, front a lot. Oh, God, there's so many people that you could put on it. And it has such like a, I feel like that audience is so like loyal in a way. Yeah. And like, yeah, how cool would that be? Like you could do it outside. So you could do it in this climate. God, that'd be amazing. So we'll see what happens, but like, I'm not trying to risk my fans or my own myself or my, my family, you know, with that. So of course, dude, I get the new baby. Yeah, of course, man. Like, um, everybody's kind of in that same boat where it's like, well, we'll call it this month. And, have our fingers crossed. And then you hear these terrifying things of like, it's going to be 2023 before we even think about shit. It's like, Oh my God. (laughs) Um, I certainly hope that's not the, I mean, I hope, I hope only the best things. I hope this goes away and I hope, I hope no more people get hurt. I don't want to see anybody get hurt. Um, But like, well, I have this fear that it'll never go back to normal. Like are people ever going to be comfortable enough to be in a room with like, hundreds or thousands even of sweaty people all singing together like have we changed our kind of the way that we think about 
like a live event or in a live setting forever? Perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps we did. But I think people need, I know I need live music for all the shit I've talked, you know, after a six week tour, it's like, Hey, you want to go see the show? Oh my God. No, I don't ever want to see a show again. I miss it so desperately that like seeing, I'm not even talking about playing. Like that's a whole other thing, but I just miss seeing a show knowing that I can go to see a show. And, uh, I just, yeah, I look forward to counting down the seconds till we can go back to seeing live music. It is its own special thing. And any, you know, Zoom or stream show is awesome, man. That's awesome. I, I bet we'll end up doing one. And uh, there's been talks of Weird Science even doing a little thing, maybe Weird Science and Upgrade, doing like a Zoom or like a, you know, stream show. Um, that's awesome and it's cool, but nothing is ever going to completely like take the place of the smell of being in a live venue the heat from energy being given off on stage and the lights and people all experiencing that together. It's something really beautiful and really powerful. And there's a reason that people pay money to go see shows. It's like this special thing. And uh, yeah, I can't wait, man. I can't wait. I have to believe it's going to come back. I'm not one of those people that's, you know, a lot of people are quick to say, Oh, it'll never come back. But generally they're not people that work in this business and they're just talking shit. So um, yeah, I'm going to remain purposely hopeful yeah and and in the meantime the nice thing is that we you know we can like it's nice having people you work with who you can trust who can give you advice and 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 not who have your best interest i'm sure blaze and the black sheep team don't want you guys doing something that's going to be dangerous for y'all or your fans oh of course not yeah i mean god we've been at this shit so long I'm sure it's true for you too. Like a lot of fans have like crossed the bridge to friends. I mean, there's like diehard Coheed fans that I don't even think of them as fans. They're friends. Like we know each other. I know their families. Like God, I would never want to put them in harm's way or any anyone that like the art speaks to that's willing to pay to come to see you. God, you'd never want to put them in danger. You want to protect those people. The opposite of put them in danger. We want to protect them. Um, you know, I guess like I'm not uh, an anti-vax guy by any means. You know, I've growing up, my parents, I got all my vaccinations, and I guess I hope for a vaccine, dude. I mean, yeah. like, you know, but God, around here, you say that, you know, around the wrong person, they'll be like, "No, that's what they want. It's going to be this and that and the other thing." And it's like, man, I just want people to be safe. That's you know, and if it's a vaccine, you know, I'll, I'll get it. I know a lot of people that say they won't. I don't think I'd be first in line to try the new vaccine that was rushed to market, but I'll certainly get it. And maybe that's the bridge to like some kind of semblance of normalcy, like getting back to, you know, life as we know it. Or what are the other options really that it just goes away? I know the president has said it's just going to go away, but it's like, I don't think that's the case. I mean, it might have downturns and then respikes and, you know, but God, Lars, like, so let's say a vaccine comes out and this Corona 19, as we know, it becomes a thing of the past, whatever the next kind of virus is, because these happen, but it's never, you know, not on this scale, but now we're tuned in. Now we're majorly tuned in and the next, whether it's, you know, a swine flu or whatever it is, the next influenza, the next thing that pops up, it's going to be different. Like we're tuned in, we're aware it's on our radar. And you're going to say like, oh, I'm not going to that show. There's been 11,000 cases of this new thing. It's time to, and perhaps that's good. Like having like more of a, 
I mean, dude, do you remember like when swine flu was happening? It was scary. Or uh, influenza too. I remember like on the news seeing like guys in hazmat suits walking down the street in New York City spraying puddles with like insecticide. That was frightening, but it didn't grip the nation. When swine flu happened, I was supposed to I had this like really well paying show opening for Ludacris in Rhode Island. And uh, it got canceled, man. And then it got rescheduled when I was on tour with Europe and Zebrahead. So I couldn't do it. And a friend, and uh, a friend of mine played the show, which was cool. But like, man, that w- it felt like I felt like, man, y'all are overreacting. And at the beginning of COVID, I'd ordered a bunch of pins from China and the factory got shut down. So I didn't get them. It was like, I'm not getting merch, man. This is the worst virus ever. It puts it in perspective, those two stories, you know. God, so we, holy cow, dude. So you, you actually lost out on a big awesome show from swine flu yeah because the school there was apparently an outbreak on the campus and they were trying to play it safe and Ludacris's people didn't think it was safe so he, shit that's crazy yeah. dude like 2009 even, even still though like it didn't grip the name like we were aware of it yeah but like everybody wasn't wearing a mask and doing all this. Like it didn't grip the nation like this. Whereas I think now we're tuned in now, like when those little outbreaks happen. Everybody's going to be aware. And like, God, it's tough, man. Cause like, do you ever find that you as a musician, like that you have maybe a wider net of people that you're exposed to than I don't know. Then if you worked at the bank and you had your friends from high school and you had your friends, you grew up like we have a wide net of people that we're exposed to, whether it's on Facebook, our friends or whatever. And around here, upstate New York, where I live, is kind of like, like one foot is kind of like progressive and like very, not New York City, like in terms of like things to do and stuff, but like a lot of progressive people, um, you know, like liberal minded people. And then on the other hand, it's like Trump County around here. It's like very country-esque. I'm sure Confederate flags, right? You see those. Yeah, I've seen that shit in New York, which is like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? But I've seen that growing up. Like, um, yeah, it's just wild. But like, I get a lot of people that are like, I get what they're saying when they're like, I'm not going to wear a mask. They're just peddling fear. When it's like, hey, listen, I understand like at the heart of what you're saying, you're not, you know, it's like, that's punk rock. I'm not going to be compliant. But like, dude. It's a mask. It's the most benign thing in the world that you could do to possibly not. Fine, you would probably be okay if you got the virus. But like, what about somebody's baby? Or what about somebody's grandmother? What about my grandmother? Like, I don't want right. her to succumb. I don't want her lungs to give out. Like, she could live for another 10 years. She could live for another 15 years. She probably will. Um, and it's just so, like, selfish. And yet, here I am, dude. I have friends that, like, embody that type of energy and it's like whoa dude like the least i could do is wear a mask and like i'm happy to do it if it can protect me and my loved ones like what the fuck is going on but like i've just been maybe i'm finally really tuning in to like how people think and feel and a lot of times i'm really shocked man like yeah really shocked that people you know good close friends of mine that are like i don't know what diehard trumper like it's like dude really like uh, you know, I was I was talking to, you know, Vinny from um, I Am the Avalanche. He said something interesting. He said, you know, people who voted for Trump, he's like, they are, if they voted for him because they want him to shake things up or whatever, like, like, that's one thing. But if you're still riding for him and still like after all the way he's mishandled this pandemic and not wanted it to be a real thing and just all of his flaws, if you're still rolling with him, like, that's a problem. I don't know. They, like that fake news shit, it plays right into his hands. When they put out a clip of him and it's only like a quarter of what he says. And then people feel like 
they kind of have discovered that the left wing media is lying because they didn't play the whole clip and like, oh, actually the whole clip, he says this, which mind you, 99% of the time, it's just as bad. It's like, yeah, that didn't make it any better, but like, I don't know. It seems like it plays right into their hands. And I've just been like in these last few weeks, like really shocked to find that I have so many friends that are just like, I don't know, willing to vote for Trump. Yeah, man. And I, yeah, it's, I, back in the, I remember 2004 era when I first started doing MC Lars, like more like professionally, I, I was very, I liked writing political rhymes and I was very like, I, I campaigned for John Kerry in the 2004 election and Obama. And, but it felt like you could say something and you could spit some like truth, political truth. And it wasn't until like I was, I was touring and I remember I was opening for Bowling for Soup and we were in Ohio and I had a anti-George Bush line and the crowd started booing at me. And I was like, oh, there are, oh, people, there are people who disagree with me, but like, I didn't even think it was that bad. And I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to stop like airing my political views. Now, fast forward, I feel like people don't want to hear like an MC Lars anti-Trump song because it feels unoriginal and it feels like yeah. people are exhausted. And so it's weird, man. Cause it's like, I wonder if you can relate to this, like with the absence of truth and like with this whole postmodern dystopian future, poking fun of it and the satire has just become, like you said, fuel for the brand. Do you ever feel that way? Like it's hard to write about it. Yeah, man. Like, uh, and I have, you know, it's like, I always try to keep things, more so than ever now, like purposely ominous in a way, like if you're going to talk about like this dark dystopian kind of stuff, like keeping it broad to where people can kind of plug in their own things. Like, yeah, I don't want to play into their hands, dude. I don't like, I feel like if I came out with like a total anti-Trump thing, it would almost just like serve their needs more than even what I'm trying to say. But like, I'm always grabbing and drawing from like what's going on around me in the world. But, you know, and I've always, I like to think of myself as like pretty plugged in, you know, at, at least like trying to be aware, at least I'm like aware enough to try to be aware. People are allowed to have like different opinions. Like I'm not the arbiter. I'm not the gatekeeper of like what you have to feel, but on a certain level, isn't there like a baseline of thoughtfulness and caring? Like, you know, I'm not saying you have to be a hardline Democrat, dude, the left wing of politics. I feel ostracized from sometimes like, I'm like, Whoa, man, that feels, like with cancel culture or things like that it's like whoa is, that's a slippery slope and like i'm all for progress and i don't want any group to be marginalized or that lives within me for real and i've learned a great deal and i'm still learning like you know i try to surround myself uh certainly like in the internet realm with people well like you man you are a smart guy and when you talk i listen i'm listening you know i don't think i have it all figured out but isn't there like a baseline of certain things that we don't kind of cross and i just yeah. am in this state of shock right now that like a lot of people that i know and love like deeply these are not like you know new friends or fair weather friends and a lot of them are man i had a i had a friend like a lifelong friend sit at my table and tell kawami a black man that racism doesn't exist and i was like yo dude like me and Kwame have traveled the world together and we've traveled this country together. And like, you can't, you, you haven't gone anywhere. How can you tell this black man that racism doesn't exist? And you know, Kwam, Kwam's also super good friends with this guy. This is a lifelong friend. Wow. But he's been like totally, 
indoctrinated into this line and he's always been like a contrarian in a way like he's always everyone likes a movie he doesn't like it if everyone hates something he does like it that's an element that doesn't sum him up totally because we're talking about a wicked smart guy we're talking about a guy that's like really intelligent but he's like part anarchist you know he that's part of his and he's he's a white he's a white guy i'm assuming oh yeah what white guy it's convenient for a white person to say that racism doesn't exist right because how can you not have the self-awareness yeah like you're sitting here telling a black man who has traveled this country and then of course guam tells him a story he's like yeah that's funny because uh you know and then you know i was like was moving merch at warp tour and there was a security guard who would open the gate for anybody walking through and Quam comes up and he's carrying three bins of merch, big Quam, and the dude closes the gate and the dude won't let him through. And Quam's like, Oh dude, come on, man, please. I've seen you open this gate. Yeah. He's probably like, here's my pass. I'm with the tour. What are you doing? Yeah. But this dude was just opening the gate like for everybody. And That's the dude, crazy. I saw Quam after but the dude straight up called him the N word. What? And Quam. Yeah. And I, I didn't see the incident, but I remember Quam crying after and Quam was just like, do I break this dude? Like what? He was really upset. And I think that was maybe it's not the first time he'd encountered racism in front of me, but like the first time that just blatant for no reason, for no reason other than the color of his skin. And he was so upset that at a place like Warp Tour that that happened. And he told that story to my friend. So we're sitting around the table. And then I told him the story of we were in West Virginia and we got it bonafide kkk magazine newspaper for and it was one of the most like interesting things i'd ever seen we took it was on top so there's a usa today stand we're in the mountains of west virginia we stop at a store and you know we got claudio with his big afro we got big qualm and a bunch of like goofy looking white kids and you could tell too like everyone's eyes were on us i thought it's just because we look like a motley crew no matter where we go and we probably don't smell great we all (laughs) live in a van you know it's like So USA Today stand, and on top of it is a stack of papers, you know, crudely put together, stapled together. Sure enough, dude, KKK emblem on the front. This was a KKK, like, you know, maybe eight-page newspaper. And we took one, and we were reading it, and it was really frightening. Again, this guy's telling us racism doesn't exist, yet we're telling you this happened, dude. We're not the news lying to you. We're not fake news. This happened, dude. And now I... You know, maybe I, dude, I might have been the kind of person that said racism is dead. Cause I, as a kid, before I had traveled anywhere, maybe I looked at that as like a righteous statement. I thought that this generation would put to bed this antiquated, so stupid. I, we can figure out how to fly. We can go to space, right? Drive cars, feed billions of people. But I don't like you because you're a different color than me. It's so fucking stupid, right? And that I thought there might have been a time when I'm 19, 20 that we laughed about racism. Oh, that shit don't exist anymore. But man, I was wrong. I was wrong. And it is out there and it does need to be stamped out. But God, if we haven't given it a voice, man, now. And that's why the Trump thing, like, hey, a great economy is awesome. I need money too. We live in a world where you need money. I like money. I like a good economy. But Jesus Christ, man, not at the expense of like our earth, not at the expense of people. That's the question, right? Like keeping our society going, keeping people like 
giving each other the benefit of the doubt, people getting along, people embracing other cultures in a, in a good way. And what's so insidious, insidious about that story, um, like leaving propaganda on a newspaper, it's so, it's so people will find it and question like, oh, is this like, is this right or is this wrong in a way where if you put it in a banal place, like in a gas station, it kind of has this scary power of it being like surprising you. And when that happens, that's always like super shocking to be like, whoa, these people just, this, this racist person went in here, probably used the bathroom, maybe bought beef jerky and left this. And like, this is part of their life. And, and it's making when evil becomes banal, that's like terrifying. Like it's like the people in the, in the Nazis in World War II that that checked the forms to buy the gas, the Zyklon B to kill to kill people in the gas chamber. All they did was send in the form to buy the gas, but like the banality of evil, right? That's such a terrifying thing, man. It's like the same energy, you know? I learned a lot reading that KKK uh, newspaper. I learned mixing truth with with your lies is a powerful technique. You know what was in there, dude? So. They printed out the lyrics to Cop Killer, mm-hmm. the Ice T song. Um, they printed out the lyrics to an NWA song. And, you know, <laughs> picture you're like a 13 year old kid, you're an 11 year old kid, not really exposed to like any kind of culture outside of your like, you know, little neighborhood in West Virginia. I mean, we were in the mountains in West Virginia. So we were, you know, we're small towns, you know. And then you read those lyrics and you say, I mean, there was also, paragraphs and i can't remember them verbatim but it was saying like these these black people want to kill you they want to kill the cops that protect you and it was like you read those lyrics and you could see how this could turn someone into a hateful monster and that was one of the I mean, it was really it was interesting like if you remove all my like the feelings from it like and we're sitting here you know with our best friend who's a black guy and he's reading it and he's like yeah they mix like they take elements from like rap music and use it to only like prop up their narrative but you could see how this could turn on like a sheltered 13 year old kid by using fear right uh there's no quotes about from dr dre about how like you know mm-hmm. he views it as an action movie and it's this and then and yes it's political but we're talking you know none of that no it's only it's the lyrics and then saying these people want to kill you and compounded with the fact that maybe your dad just got laid off from the coal mine and here's someone who promises that they're going to give that get get more jobs in that industry. And so therefore it's like, oh, it's like, oh, all my problems are solved by me turning to this monstrous, like animalistic tribalism. And that's what this is what the right has fed on. It's scary, man. And it's like it's like they're in a sleep paralysis in a way, going back to that, like they are they can't move. But here comes this, like, I don't know, this darkness over them, and it feels like that is the, their reality. And if they could just wake up and, like, someone can tap them and be like, no, look, here's a black dude who's, like, an amazing person, a great friend, and, and, and has done all this amazing stuff. And look, like, you can't, you can't dehumanize what you don't know. I don't know. I thought I'd bring it back to that. Yeah, nice, excellent segue, by the way. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just so wild to, like, paint a whole culture of people by the lyrics of one song. But, man like putting yourself in okay i'm a 13 year old kid reading this magazine it's like i could see how this is like effective and it's a really eye-opening moment i think for all of us like yeah. dude, i didn't even really know that the kkk existed mm. and 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 they've been so ugh, emboldened and yeah 
And this was, dude, by, by the way, this is like 2002. It's like 2003. This is forever ago. How many kids got that newsletter and said, you know what, man? Yeah, I'm with their, or their dad said, hey, you need to read this. And like, oh my God. Like, isn't, don't we as thoughtful people, like we do, there is a sense of duty to combat that, right? And it's like, yeah. At my table is a lifelong friend telling my other friend, my best friend, that this doesn't exist. And it's like, whoa, how could you have that little self-awareness to like, as a white guy, you're telling in like, and then not even re- like really, it didn't resonate when he told him like, no, dude, actually, you know, I've had these experiences, you know, in not defense of my other friend, of my friend that told Kwame that racism doesn't exist, his I think what he was saying, and he was half in the bag too when he said that, but he was saying that it's not the problem that the media makes it out to be. I think that's what he was getting at, which thank God, yeah, thank God I didn't know the KKK existed. Thank God they're not marching down my streets. And They had a rally, the KKK in Kingston. You know, it was, it was pathetic. It was like eight people showed up and, you know, tons of protests, tons of anti-KKK people showed up and rocked it and held it down you know and that and that's awesome but thank god like but it still exists and to tell like somebody of color that it doesn't exist is so fucking crazy wrong and lacks any semblance of self-awareness like oh my god dude why um yeah that's just a little god i didn't think we get into all this (laughs) yeah well you know you never know though that's a conversation right it just kind of goes where it goes yeah what what how did what did we get? Oh, we were talking about COVID. That was it. And how like, and, and masks and right. And you were talking about, we we're talking, I know I got started. We were talking about touring and then we we're like, we'll, we start talking about vaccines and then we start talking about anti-vaxxers and yada, yada. And here, and yeah, your brain works better than mine. Cause I <laughs> completely forgot how we got there, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. So I wanted, so I, last time we didn't get to do this because um, we got cut off, but I wanted to, um, like give you a chance to talk about where people can support the weird science stuff and the COVID stuff, but mainly like where people can support your solo projects and where you like, like people to find your music. Uh, you know, Bandcamp has always been like the place for us that we see the most money from, honestly. I mean, um, but you know, it's on Spotify. I think we did have one of our records taken down uh off apple and i don't know if that like translates to also i from what i understand is it's getting reinstated and that was read by julia too they said there was a sample that wasn't cleared but it's um, on spotify still i remember oh good i didn't know if because apple took it down if that like had like its tentacles go out then it comes down off all the other uh streaming services but um it is being reinstated on apple but you know Bandcamp has been i mean that's how red light julia was successful for us dude it was like we could try to like do this and play the game that like big acts play, or we could like kind of embrace our mom popness and tell people like, Hey, this is, uh, you know, like a quiet release. This isn't, you know, we don't, we did commercials. We started filming these commercials because Ernie got into video making and they were awesome. Yeah. By the time Red Light Juliet 2 came out, dude, it was like, you know, we sold enough copies that like everybody could pay their rent for a couple months off of it. And we just, we always split the money like three ways. I just, it's not about money. So, so you split it. So who, who are the three people then you, me, Chris and Ernie. Wow. Um, yeah. And like Ernie as an idea guy and just as like a facilitator, I don't think any of the red light Juliet's happened without Ernie, like especially back then, dude, I didn't have a license er, and I lived in Albany. Here comes Ernie, pick me up, bring me to the studio. Like he just was a great facilitator. 
He co-produced all those records. Chris made a lot of music. I mean, there's a song on the first Red Light Juliet. It's probably the biggest production we've ever done as Weird Science. It's all live instruments, live horns, live drums. It's a song called Evil Genius. And, uh, dude, like other rappers and other musicians like have hit me up about that song in the years that follow. And they're like, you need to do a video for that song. That song has legs. One guy told me, man, he's like, dude, you ever wrote a song that has legs? That's the one. And I love that song. And that was a song that I, li- dude, I wrote that on tour with you. I wrote that in my mind and wrote it down in a notebook in Europe. And John Longley was like, I like that thing you're singing. And I was like, that gave me the confidence to try to do like a fifties doo-wop kind of song. Mind you, this is like before Sean Kingston or before, uh, Megan Trainer and kind of brought ushered in that like fifties thing. What's the yeah? What's the melody or what's the? It's all like. Oh yeah. It's all like extra fifties out. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, I remember in, we were like loading in. Uh, dude, I, it's so funny how some things stick in my brain and other things don't. I remember it clear as day. We were in Europe. We were doing that tour through the UK, and I wrote that, and I wrote down those words. And then it was still years. You know, it was years that went by till we recorded it. Because, man, like, afraid of being corny is something I've let go of. Because, you know what? I'm corny. I don't care. Like, corny, being afraid to be corny is like handcuffs. Right, it's like my stupid gangster friends from Kingston, like yo, this is corny. That's actually how I know something's good. If my friends are like, "This sucks, dude. This is corny," I'm like, "Oh, this must be pretty good." Because <laughs> um, anything that they like is usually like the most kind of like you know trying to get on. And I like that shit too. That just like ignorant, hard, you know, action movie type shit. Um, but that's not really my steez, right? Like that's not what I can pull off. So that was like a big song, but we spent time and money on that song like we're and we don't have time or money so we'd be like in the studio after hours you know chris worked all day on a session and then like we leave and he invites his rap buddies up in this you know two thousand dollar a day studio messing around and having fun it was awesome i loved making those records man it was like a really powerful experience for me and and proved to me that i can do this like not on drugs I mean, honestly, dude, like Sick Kids was recorded, like a lot of it, you know, it was really deep. It was fucked up, man. It's like, I'm telling these people I'm sober. They know I'm lying. I'm in the bathroom every 10 minutes. Like they know what's going on. I'm pouring sweat. And then I'm singing songs about how I'm sober, but I'm really not like, duh, they can hear the words I'm spitting. (laughs) Like I'm telling them in the song, like I'm lying to everybody. It just was a deep experience. And then, you know, those three records, I was going to say those three records, like after you and I worked together on the business, like it was cool to see you doing the label stuff and the production stuff on your own and it being profitable and those songs then becoming like some of your most streamed songs. It's cool, man. You were figured it out. Like you got sober, you figured it out and you figured it out as a drummer and a rapper. And it was like, it's been cool to see you flourish. And, and that's why I wanted to talk about those records this episode because they, I feel like they were big impactful records on your career in a way, in a surprising way, maybe. Right. Totally surprising. Dude. I mean, you know, it's hard having like a little bit of visibility, you know, it's like, I feel like I'd always let people down by not being more famous, you know? And that, and it's like, that sounds corny, but it's really true. It's like, we'd show up to play a show. 
and there'd be eight people there. And it's like, I didn't feel like as a team, it sucked. I felt like everyone was mad at me. And that, that's through no fault of their own. That's my own yeah, wonky way of, of kind of absorbing what was happening. And that's my own shit, my own hangups. But I would feel like that. And the feelings were real. And Lord knows we did plenty of shows with no one there, you know? Um, when, when, like when we went on tour and we did work to like, those were big wins for us. Like for me, you know, it was like, this was I me. Mean, here I am. I'm like really doing it, you know? And then like when that didn't turn into like world famous success, you know, I felt like I'd let people down, um, yeah. which probably includes you too, Lars, you know? And it's like, I don't know if you ever felt like that, but I did, you know? And it was like, God, I let, everybody down and it was hard to kind of step back up to the plate well Um, you know that was we talked about this on the last episode it was an experiment for both of us and i think it's a testament to our friendship and our like maturity that we there was never any like beef or any sort of like anger at that you did we did what we could with the record i was so proud of i remember when we were in england and we saw the alternative press review like and like, like there were all these victories for that record that led to you having this longevity. So it's cool that there was never any kind of like, I don't know. I think we both appreciated what we did for each other and we both can look back and say, yeah, like that was a cool moment. And hopefully I, one day I'd love to do more music with you, man. Cause I feel like we still have like the potential to, to keep those seeds growing, but no, you never let me down, Josh. And I, I appreciate you like being sensitive but you you really killed it and it's been awesome seeing you grow with your business as a rapper in addition to your your drumming stuff so yeah man i I think you should be proud dude the red light julie records were the first time that there was ever like more money than we anticipated (laughs) that had never happened before and we're not you know ultimately we're not talking about a lot of money but like it was what a feeling and then i got to express like since everything was good i got to express like hey guys like when we play a show and there's not a lot of people, I feel like everybody's mad at me. And then they got to express, what are you crazy? We're in this together. And then just saying it out loud was really good. I always do that. Like I, I'm hard on myself in a way. And like, maybe as I've gotten older, I've learned to not be quite as hard on myself, but I don't want to let people down. And it's, I no one. I'm not, you know, Bon Jovi. I'm not Lars Ulrich. Like I'm not, like famous really it's not people aren't going to come and pay money to see me just because you know uh i play drums in coheed uh or just because of anything we have to work for this like anybody else and i think sometimes um certain people that have been like in my inner circle like expected it to be uh like famous type limos and shit and it's like whoa dude you are rolling with the wrong crew like that's not and then we, I put kind of put it together like in this mom pop way and kind of cut out a lot of that bullshit on and kept it on the peripheral and like not didn't really invite it in. And we had some good, uh, yeah, success. Like those three records did really well for us. Um, I would love to do more stuff with you, Lars. God, you sent me that 1984 joint with Mega Ran. It's like that's one of those times where I tried to write something and it just. I don't know, man. It could also be just me. Like I'm writing stuff. It could be the best shit I ever wrote, but I'm so hard on myself. And I think it's terrible that it like, it just wrecks me and I never end up getting it done. And then, and then who did that serve? I don't even end up doing it and it served no one. Then watch, I'll find that verse 
uh, a month from now and be like, this thing's amazing. But at the time, I'm like, God, everything I do sucks. And, you know, that, there's a lot of getting out of my own way I have to do. When you're not in the same room, it's harder too, right? And I think oh, big time. that's yeah, part of it. Like, like Big time. So I don't know, man. I think being in a studio together, like we did when we did uh, our first, the How to Be an Indie Rapper. No, no, no. What was the first song? The Industry 187. We were in the studio together. Uh, didn't we do both of them together? I bet we did. I think we did. It both in one was in uh, Applehead, the other one was at like Maze Man Studio, I think. Yeah, we went to Maze Man Spot. Yeah, that was awesome. That was such an exciting time, dude. Uh, you, how's he doing, man? Did you talk to him, or is that? Um, but then, yeah, you know how it is when you have like a friend, but he's your other boy's friend right. more than your friend, and then they have a falling out, and then it doesn't continue. So, um, I still rock my Maze Man shirt. I wore my Maze Man shirt when I did a song with Upgrade. Um, on his first record that, uh, you know, I helped get upgrade a deal with equal vision and they put out a record and, um, you know, again, I think, you know, people have like expectations of like worldwide fame and stuff, not upgrade, but like fans. Um, and then when that doesn't happen, they just kind of like, I don't know, they fall off. Like I remember seeing upgrade play in Kingston and you, there was like 300 people stuffed into this little club. Like you couldn't even move. It was uncomfortable. It was probably not safe to have that many people in there. And he just destroyed it. And I was like, this kid could be a star. And so I call up Equal Vision. They come and see him. He booked the show on a Tuesday, but he booked it on Monday. Like no one was there. And he played to an empty house, but just so Equal Vision could see him. And he crushed it and killed it. And they put out a record. And I know I had big dreams for it. But as we know, you know, it doesn't always work out like that. You know, it did, it did good things for him. But like it didn't have the kind of success that like, I think the fans, I think like the people in Kingston were like, now it's on, now he's going to blow. And it's like, Hey, it still takes a lot of work and time. Like I still yeah. believe that Tom ultimately upgrade will have his day. You know, it might not be exactly the way I envisioned it, but he's just, he's too creative and he's too good of a dude and too funny and too comfortable on stage to have no success. So he's out there doing his thing. I mean, um, and we'll do our record together and it'll be fun, but I, I'll always have faith in Tom as an artist. I really, really, really like his stuff a lot. Back in the day, being on a label, like having that equal vision brand or like being an epitaph band, right? Like 15 years ago, that'd be enough for a band to like, oh, everyone be like, oh, they're big and sell hundreds of tickets. But now, I don't know, man, being signed on a label, the question is, is that enough if they're not pushing it right through the algorithms? And yeah, it certainly doesn't mean what it used to, right? I mean, yeah. God, I... Like there was a time when, when Coheed signed Equal Vision, somebody was like, oh, well, that's good for 5,000 records right there. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, oh, well, there's lots of kids that'll pick it up just because it's Equal Vision. I was like, oh, shit, dope, great. I mean, that sounded awesome. Um, I'm yeah. not sure that's the case anymore. But God, you do look at like his streams and like the Equal Vision releases are night and day different. You know, there's like uh, 70,000 for this Equal Vision release, but then like ones that he did on his own are like 3,000. And it's like, well, that's, you know, I mean, Equal Vision swung, dude. They took a swing. And it, it reminded me a lot of what you did for me, dude. Like, there was a lot of Horace records in what I was trying to do. Like, um, the plan was to have my own imprint. Uh, we didn't do that. I think Upgrade wanted the Equal Vision name, although we could have had Equal Vision and an imprint. Um, but we didn't do that. Um, it just, we took a swing and it didn't work. We couldn't find any rock bands to take him out on tour. And we didn't have the footprint in the hip hop world to get him on tours. We tried, we fucking tried. Yeah. And dude, I got a real like tangible lesson in how hard it is like, and how defeating it can feel 
to when it doesn't break your way. And it's like, God, getting breaks is hard. And then I think about like how lucky I was. Oh, sure, Lars, I'll do. Yeah, we'll do this record together. Boom, I'm in Europe touring. Boom, I'm on Warp Tour. We couldn't get upgrade on anything. Like no one was willing to bite. And he's fucking great. We get this great record, yeah. great videos. He's a great performer. And yeah, nobody bit, which I, again, maybe everything happens for a reason. Maybe, you know, and, and maybe there's a, we're all laughing about this, but it was defeating. And I definitely kind of battled that, like feeling like I let him down, you know, and I, I still do. And he's a great friend of mine. Like he's a really close friend of mine. And uh, that certainly wasn't my intention. I did everything I could. You need to put out 10 records over 15 years and not let anyone stop you. And at that point, maybe you can draw 50 to 100 people in and in, in do a club tour. But only then, like, you can't let one setback disappoint you. And I think that's what's dope about seeing your career. And, and like, oh, I'm sure Upgrade's learning this too. It's like, okay, well, that was just a speed bump. It's like totally you own the power to it if you're willing to sacrifice whatever to get there it's just not going to be one thing right so fucking true man i know yeah. and it's like luckily for tom you know tom's on his own now and like he, he just put out another record on his own he'll keep that kid will never stop making music but i had to learn that too and i'm sure you did not everything goes hunky-dory man it's like there's setback after setback after setback but if this lives in us you know it's like you gotta find a way to keep keep going and that's why before when you asked like about weird science and what's the plan i mean i will do you know, dude, I could wake up tomorrow and just be like, oh, my God, I have to do. I have a bunch of songs. We have a bunch of songs. We have a name for the next record. We will put it out. I mean, it's just about like fine tuning them. And then me saying like, OK, these are ready to record, which that hard on myself thing comes, you know, and it's like I'll drop some of what I've been writing for like Ernie or Chris. And they'll be like, oh, that's dope. And I kind of need that. I've never been the kind of person. That's why I play the drums, dude. I didn't have that chip. I didn't have that part of my personality that would like force myself on other people, force my music on other people. Cause the first person that said that they didn't like it, I'd want to crawl back in my hole, you know, and, like I was missing that thing. So I lined up with other people uh, and said, Hey, well I'll play the drums. I'll be right. the guy that plays the drums, you know? And, um, so I wanted to be a part of music, but I didn't. And I still don't, I can't like, we worked, diligently on this record we don't even know what it was maybe it was weird science maybe it was something else i was calling it the paint away it's just a band but i did you know i played a lot of chris played bass on it because i'm the world's worst bass player um and then you know we're messing around with some keys and chris played some keys and i played some keys but i played guitar and i sang and wrote all the string parts and like we worked diligently on it but like the second that it enters this realm where like i have to be pushy about my art I just can't seem to do it. I should be pushier. Like my wife will be like, why aren't you working on that stuff? And I'm like, no, 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 we're going to, and I'll put in a call and say, Hey, like we already did. A if you don't finish it, it makes the whole thing a waste of time. Why did we spend all those weeks on this music? If we're not going to see it through and finish it, you know? Right. Um, and then I'll call and they'll be like, Oh, well we'll get in here on Wednesday. But then Tuesday I get a call like, Hey, Wednesday's not going to work. It's going to be Friday. And then I feel like they hate it and they're laughing at me and they don't. Hey, like the first Weird Science record has this song, Joshua, they're laughing at you. That's something I've battled my whole life. You know, it's like, um, well, jumping in the rap game probably wasn't the greatest idea if you don't want to get laughed at. But what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> or being in Coheed, man. I picked a really funny life for somebody that doesn't want to get laughed at. Um, you embrace the laughter. You say, fuck your laughter. I'm going to do it anyway. Um, but then I just can't, I can't be forceful about it. And maybe even just right now, talking about it is a healthy thing for me to acknowledge it 
and cut that part out. Maybe I need to be a little bit for, hey, man, let's get in there and finish this. But I yeah. just feel like I'm pushing my art on them. And it's like if they're not excited to do it, it doesn't like break my heart or hurt my feelings. But it, it's just I don't know, man. I'm missing that chip. Well, um, I mean, Josh, enthusiasm and passion is so contagious. And if you have boys or anyone who wants who's worked with you in the past, I found like you can't. That's always been part of my journey is making sure my collaborators are feel excited and getting people excited and it's yeah. really, it's really contagious and especially when you have a track record like you and like i don't know i think i I would give you i would say as your friend like give you the license and encouragement to just be just be confident and do it you know yeah dude it's a confidence issue honestly yeah. whether it's weird science whether it's cohe whether it's anything i mean when i start started hearing people talk like on a national scale about like imposter syndrome Right. That spoke to me. I was like, oh, my God. But I had this experience, the, sa the sound guy who had just gotten the cover of, like, Mix Magazine. And I overheard him tell me or make a joke. He said, well, I, tr I tricked him for one more day. They didn't find out I'm a fraud yet. Right. And I was like, God, you feel like that? And he's like, every day. And I was like, damn, you're on the <laughs> fucking cover next month of Mix Magazine, and you feel like that? And he said, brother, everybody feels like that. And I was like, oh, shit. Well, everyone who's everyone who's great, who keeps trying to be better. I mean, if you don't feel like a fraud, then you could. that's when you fall off, honestly. You stop making records and caring, I think. I mean, that's the whole irony, no, dude, right? I think you're, yeah, no, you're totally, what is it called? Like, uh, Kruger syndrome, Duner Kruger. What, there's like a name for it where like the, you're the other end where it's like you're too stupid to realize that you suck. It's a really funny. That's funny. Well, we've all encountered motherfuckers like that. I'm not trying to be a dick, but like we yeah. all, especially in the rap world, right. dude, like it's so painfully void of any talent. Hey, blood on the dance floor. No. That's a great example. Yeah. I don't, you know, like, dude, I have no allegiance to whatever. And if you like it, fine. Like, whatever. I get it. It's the stick of dynamite in music that was so. But like that dude, Davi, and I don't. Uh, whatever's happening with him like beyond all that i would have said this 10 years ago when everybody loved him there's there's not much talent there in my you know and everyone is entitled to make music and do their thing but like i just it ain't for me and i recognize that like if it speaks to you fine it's great but like to me it was like oh my god this is like void of anything that even resembles talent the other guy actually had some talent he could sing and would perform well but yeah. um yeah, no. To me, and art is subjective like that. Like, I get, like, I hate even saying that, honestly. I, it's totally prickish. But if I'm being honest, in my mind and in my universe, I was like, oh my God, how could, like, to even have the balls to get on stage and be that bad is kind of amazing in one sense, but like, holy shit. Well, I mean, and then it's that diluted, uh, I mean, yeah, we don't have to, this could be a whole other thing, the diluted thing of feeling like you have the, you're untouchable and you can do these horrific things to these young fans because you feel like so emboldened in an insane way, like sociopathic evil way, man, that the stories that came out about that kid and like that it was oh, probably happening that tour. It's, it's, it's yeah. That's After our podcast, I went and checked out some Ooh. of the stories like, holy shit. Like Josh, you talked about the guy, Jay, who was the singer, right? The, mm -hmm. he that guy was actually hiv positive and and dobby would n like make sure he didn't get his medicine on tour so he'd be weak so he could boss him around did you know that dude i read no i read that what shit. the like, heck i mean he, i gotta say like then I, I had mentioned on the the first podcast that we did like i or part one or whatever like i had mentioned that like the guys in the band were nice i'm talking about their band I'm talking about their drummer sure. the guitar player was yeah. nice um 
I had like very minimal interaction with Davi. I think we said hi once. So I, I you know, but like I, he always, it was always odd to me. But again, I thought like, oh, I'm just, ah, uh, you know, getting old. Like if I ever saw that dude like with his hands all over like a young, young girl, like the story would be ex-drummer from Coheed and Cambria breaks jaw of blood on the dance floor. And everybody probably hate me for it. But like I would, nobody would stand for that if we saw it in front of us. No one. No. No one that I know anyway. But God, the stories are horrifying. And then I have to like, you know, ask myself, like, God, was that going on right underneath our noses? And like right on Warp Tour, but they really blew up like the next year. That's like the year they were on the main stage. They did Warp and, the next uh, year, didn't they? Yeah, they were on the main stage. Like I went down the Blood on the Dance Floor rabbit hole right after our podcast. I started like reading about all that stuff because I'd heard a lot about it. But like, yeah, the HIV thing, I didn't even know that Jay had HIV or, or whatever. That's pretty crazy. And then like how Davi wouldn't pay him. He never got paid. They're in this huge mm-hmm. band doing like $50,000 in merch a day. And he's, and he's the talent. He's the talent of the band with the singing. Yeah. Like at least that guy has some talent. Like, you know, even as a performer, it was always clear to me that he was much more comfortable on stage, but like everybody would be like, Davi, Davi was just strange. It was so odd to me. But you know, it's um, the irony also that they're named after a, an album by an artist who's kind of fallen from grace for his sexual Michael Jackson's Blood on the Dance Floor, the remix record, totally, right? Isn't dude, that I ironic? I thought about that. Yeah. yeah, dude. I never even thought about that. Another guy that, I mean, that dude's going to like end up in jail, Davi, because there, there are some things the that FBI. like definitely pass the line into criminal, like young, young girls. And it's like, whoa, dude, like, yeah. and just his treatment of people in general seems awful. Imagine if he'd spent that energy working on music and learning to sing and I don't know, whatever. I mean, I don't. I, it's just like I know I don't want to be a prick either, but if if I'm being totally honest, and again, like if you're a, a mute, trust me, dude. Plenty of people think I'm awful, and you're entitled to your opinion. In my universe, when I saw Blood and Dance Floor, I was like, "Holy shit, that dude can't sing, can't rap, can't dance, can't do anything, and yet he's a star." It's like, God, what a business! What a business I've dedicated my life to. <laughs> it's just fucking crazy. I, you know, I've always wanted to do a remix of um, the Red Light Juliet song and like tell a version of it, tell a version of it from more like the communion from the book side, like kind of like the Lars Attacks vibe. If, I, dude, if, that would tight. be so dope. Are you kidding me? Yo, if you ever want to do that, dude, I'll get you the music. Oh my God, that would be so fresh. Have you ever read communion? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's come up a lot on this podcast because of uh, Friend of mine, who, who this is a long story. I'll keep it short. Friend of mine who died in a car wreck when he was on Halloween when he was like fourteen. He loved that book and he left a copy to one of my bandmates with all his notes. So cu- cu- reading that book, it's always felt like we've had a communion with our friend Jason. Um, mm. And so it's been it's a powerful book in our friendship. And so yeah, it's wow. crazy. How, how about you? Have you read it? Yeah, but dude, I bet you if I read it again now, it would be like the first time. I read it as a young man. My mother was into it. Like, and when the movie came out, she was like, oh, we got to see this movie, blah, blah, blah. And then she had a copy of it, and my brother read it, and then I was the last one to read it. I don't think my dad read it, but um, yeah, God, I can't even remember. I mean, you're talking to a guy who's read it twice, and it is like a, you know, it's overwhelming, dude. The book is so big. Right. I was going to read it a third time, and I was like, ah, it's like too overwhelming. I was like intimidated by the size of it. But reading it the second time, it's like, oh, my God. Like I also have read The Shining twice. Um, same thing. It's like when you watch a movie and then two years goes by. It's like you remember the main plot points. 
but there's so many other delicate, subtle things in there that ultimately pay off in those big plot moments that you forget. Mm. So I, I got to reread communion and it, and I guarantee as I'm reading it, like I'll remember like a couple things, but it would be like the first time again. That's cool. And it's so close to home. Yeah. I mean, how, how cool is that? I mean, it's just, it's interesting. It's neat. I mean, uh, the Hudson Valley is kind of like a hotbed for UFO activity. And it always has been, I mean, I, with my own eyes saw one of the most famous UFO sightings of all time. And I saw it. What was it called? What I responded to more than the ship that was hovering above our street going so slow and uh, no noise, dude, zero noise. And it was just, I responded more to the fear from the adults. I'm a young, young man. I'm five years old. My brother's eight. Now, this gets confusing because the year before people saw it too. So Mm. there's sightings from like 84, but 85 is when hundreds of thousands of people saw it pictures and it's like it's almost like it hasn't been scrubbed from the internet but dude for like the next few years like people would share their pictures of this ufo it's like where are all these pictures Mm. there's like a couple pictures online it's like everyone had printed pictures of this thing we're standing i was with my grandparents my like conservative well-to-do grandparents and they couldn't believe their eyes and i remember feeling like the fear from the adults. I mean, it was there so long. Everyone came out of their houses and was just staring up. But 85 was the one that just like, or if my dates are wrong, it was 83. I was five when I saw it. My brother was eight. We came back from wherever we were with my grandparents. It was like dusk. It was getting dark. It was about dark summertime, um, or you know, warmish weather. Now I'm five. So like, granted, like my memories have shifted and changed. But when I saw the pictures, it was just like, mind-blowing and you know what they said it was they said it was 13 airplanes flying in unison that's the official word and Mm. there's just like the adults will tell you now again i wouldn't go i wouldn't even talk about this if it was just a five-year-old's recollection but this is like i didn't just see it and then now you know 35 years later i'm talking about this has been talked about at not over the years just so much you know, like people, this was a big Hudson Valley. Unsolved Mysteries did a damn episode about it. That's mm. how big it was. Wow. And there's cops, there's firemen, there's military people. I, everybody that saw this thing is like, there is no way that it was 13. Dude, it was so low, you could clearly see that it was a solid object. And it made no noise and just slowly hovered. And like, like well, not hovered, it was moving forward, but so slow that it looked like it was just like hovering and we why and everybody got pictures because it was there for so long. Everybody got pictures and do you have pictures? You, know, you think still? Oh, I, people have to do. It's just it was a thing that for at least months after I say years, but like you know, it was a hot button issue again before the internet. People talked. People bring over their pictures. The neighbors would come over to my grandparents and compare pictures. You know, it's like we don't have any pictures of it. Um, my my grandparents didn't take pictures, but I remember the neighbors, the Moors, had pictures. The Bradleys had pictures, like people on the street, everyone had pictures of this thing and people would share them and talk about them. But again, being that young, the the illest part for me was the fear of the adults and just the, not some fear, some just like bewilderment. And, you know, like you're a kid, adults know everything. You're five years old and I'm holding my grandmother's hand and she's just like, you could feel the fear when she's like, oh, Jesus, Chuck, what is that? Oh man, it, dude, it makes my hair stand up right now. Yeah. Like you could feel like 
they didn't know what it was. And that's what I responded to the most. But my eyes, you know, brains are not always functioning at their best and memories are, have proved malleable, right? Like memories are, uh, they can shift and whatnot, but I laid eyes on that thing. And I always think that's cool that I actually saw one of the big ones, one of the big ones that gets talked about a lot. That's cool. Um, it is cool. Right. But the Hudson Valley has a lot of sightings and, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. Somebody was just talking about the other day, how like during all the COVID stuff, like that they found, um, or that they've released, there's been like more disclosure in terms of UFOs and uh, things of that nature in the last like few months than ever before. But it all kind of gets swept under the rug due to, right. you know, the pandemic and all this stuff, which is also really interesting. They released those videos and stuff. It those were crazy. Convenient. Yeah, awfully convenient. Yeah, totally. It's a good concept. I, I would love to work on that. It would be dope. Yeah, it'd be super dope. Well, you let me know anytime, man. Josh, thank you, man. This has officially been the longest. We did two great episodes, so it's been the longest, the longest guest I've had uh, in terms Dude, of time. So I love thank that you. you were like, "Hey, I'll, I'll, we'll just do a quick half an hour." You <laughs> know what, Lars? I just like talking to you, man. I, I probably talk too long. If you want to edit, cut out whatever you want. You do whatever you want to me. Um, but I really enjoyed this, man. It's kind of like a great way to uh, have my day really kick off. And now I'm going to go try to run seven miles. And think a lot about what you talked about. I always do that like after the fact, think about it, but um, maybe next time we do a show, I'll shut the fuck up a little bit and not talk so much, but I really enjoyed it. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, thanks man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. All right, Lars, be easy, man. Thanks, Josh. Peace. Bye. Peace. Check. You know, we've all lost somebody before had somebody selfishly take themselves off of this planet. Just want to say, I love you, Corey, man. I miss you. I know these kids and they love to get high Probably to try to escape the same things that I have battled with And now steamed up to our psyche At one point or another we're all convinced that we might be Just a tad bit broken And only hear the bad even when good things are spoken We find solace and find patterns and bottles And a lot of us become the demons that we can't abolish So we apply the polish Put up a front that says we're okay But in reality we're demolished there's a lot of different ways to kill yourself While some of them are blatant, others are hidden well And when your family can't tell And it's you against the world But your whole world's a living hell And if you're anything like me You gotta know you're not alone And we've all been 23 song four years ago. A lot of healing has taken place since then. A girl in London told me that her boyfriend took his life. He was 23. I said it hurts, but it's alright. I told her not to worry. He'd be up in heaven waiting. I don't have the answers, but listen, this is all I'm saying. I've seen the demons too. They want to take me down. I felt the darkness closing in like no one is around. I battled with this feeling even though I keep it quiet. I miss my homie Pat. And I can't deny it I wrestle with the guilt Like maybe it was all my fault And so I write these songs Because it's all I got It's sitting on a rocky mics With science every night Making music, touring Europe Keeping his memory alive We raised a grand for the AFSP Pat, I see you homie And I hope you're proud of me You said that rap was magic Every time I did my vocal takes Funny how the heart can heal Even when you feel it break you 
gentlemen, I want you to meet a good friend of mine. This is Patrick Wood. What's up, Lars? What's up, Pat? How you doing, man? Good. What do you think of me having my recording equipment take up three quarters of our small room in the Kimball dorm? No problem, man. I love you. I love you too, Pat. Thanks, Lars. Pat Wood, hey, that's you. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, Weird Science, Josh Shepard. Be sure to follow my man's music, his updates, and uh, I look forward to collaborating with him more in the future. Next week, we got Soul, S-O-L-E. Every week we have Soul, but next week we have S-O-L-E, the, one of the founders of Anticon, which was a amazing, it's still amazing, influential independent hip-hop label that put out so much music that really informed my taste in hip hop and a lot of you know a lot of people's taste in hip hop in the early 2000s and today we talk about what life is like living on a farm in rural Maine we talk about the history of Anticon and uh, fatherhood it's a great interview so tune in next week thank you all for listening check out the Bandcamp for the new releases and check out WAP the remix on Spotify love y'all talk to you next week peace have a good week <laughs>